0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today preface with some of me. First, in a few minutes, we'll hear from Vijay Prashad on Syria, Trump, and the state of the global left. And just after the half-hour mark, Jennifer Cohen will talk about gender and economics. Before getting to the outside talent, I've got a few things to say. First, here's a piece I wrote for the Jacobin Magazine website the other day, part of a roundtable on Trump after one year in office. In his book, On Television, Pierre Bourdieu warns against the twin temptations of historical analysis. Everything is totally changed and unlike anything that went before, and nothing has changed over the last thousand years. Nowhere are those temptations as visible as they are in Trump studies. You've got a large set of critics screaming that he's our Hitler, or for the Russophobes, our Stalin, a violator of all the ethical norms of high office. And there's a hearty band of Facebook ultras, less numerous than the alarmists, to assure us that Trump is little different from Obama. The deportation numbers are down, for example, though there are some technicalities involved. Is it too distressingly moderate to say that there's more continuity in Trump than the screamers say, but that he does mark a turn for the worse? People who talk about the dignity of the presidency mustn't think much about Richard Nixon, a far more interestingly twisted character than the one-dimensional Trump. Nixon ran a private spying operation and bombed Cambodia in total secrecy. His drunken ravings caused a frightened Henry Kissinger, co-architect of those secret bombings, and Alexander Haig to hide the nuclear football from him. It's likely that Kelly, McMaster, and Mattis have a similar arrangement to control Trump. Trump's horrendous xenophobia, shocking by recent standards, has a lot in common with the nativism of the late 19th and early 20th century. His authoritarian longings are in tune with the country that brought you the Palmer Raids and McCarthyism, that Trump has fallen well short of those models so far. And no one is shooting strikers now, though that may be because there are so few strikers. But everything does feel worse. Policy aside, there's no question that Trump is a bare expression of the American political id. He's encouraged the worst people, Nazis, white supremacists, class of civilization types, to be far more open and violent. ISIS war on immigrants and the targeted roundup of immigrant leaders is vicious and terrifying. Nuclear wars become something people talk about casually. Millions will lose health care, national monuments will give way to uranium mines, and the climate will go to hell at an accelerating rate. Trump himself is ignorant and aimless, but there are enough right-wing thugs around him to do a lot of damage. It's only accelerating a long-term downtrend in the quality of American life, but an acceleration it is. In the face of this, the left, whose prospects seemed good in the first days of the Trump regime, now looks confused and divided against itself. Leaving aside the Russophobes, who can't be taken seriously, we've got one set of people blaming identitarians for everything, and another set blaming brochalists. It's like the 2016 campaign not only didn't go away, but became a chronic disease. I wish I had a cure because it's debilitating and the times are miserable. And that's the end of my comments for Jacobin on Trump after a year in office. You can find three other contributions on the topic from Kim Phillips-Fine, Paul Heidemann, and Kate Aronoff on the Jacobin website at jacobinmag.com. And now to the guests. First, Vijay Prashad. Vijay is a historian, journalist, and now former academic. The author of something like 20 books, Vijay Prashad taught for many years at Trinity College in Connecticut, but he's decided to resign for reasons we'll hear at the end of the interview. He now identifies as the editor at Left Word Books, based in New Delhi, and executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. You can find him on the web at vjprashad.org. Vijay Prashad. Welcome, Vijay. It's been quite a while. Let's start by talking about Turkey's invasion of the Kurdish region of Syria. What do you make of it?
1: You know, it's, uh, by the way, it's nice to be back with you. Uh, it's complicated business in Syria. You know, the first thing to point out is that the bulk of the conflict in Syria, which was occasioned by the, uh, you know, uprisings in 2011, and then, of course, uh, drawing in um, opportunistically Saudi, Qatari, Turkish money and logistical support. Of course, the United States was involved so you know that rebellion uh, that uh, invasion of a certain kind is basically fizzled out uh, it is now restricted to pockets around damascus but really the province of idlib well, what i think is going on now which is in a sense more grave is as the uh, turkish sta- the uh, syrian state weakened as its control over the pro- provinces uh, you know deteriorated as a consequence of the earlier rebellion different regional entities have uh, started to chip away at Syria. Uh, In the north, uh, there has been, of course, historically a large Kurdish population, a Syrian Kurdish population. And what the Syrian Kurds had done when the rebellion broke out in 2011 is they had consolidated themselves not only into a fighting force, but they had sort of begun a regional administration, um, particularly in the towns uh, of, uh, of Kobane, uh, in the very north, near the Turkish border, Afrin, Manbij, etc. And, you know, since 2011, essentially, they have uh, established a government. Uh, they have welcomed refugees. I mean, they functioned basically like uh, any government in the region. When the United States needed an ally uh, against ISIS uh, in the northern part of Syria, they relied on the uh, Syrian Kurds, who created a front group called the Syrian Democratic Forces. Now, what, of course, this did was it rankled the Turkish government, which has long tried to suppress any Tur- Kurdish ambition, of course, uh, to suppress it inside Turkey, but also at its borders. So with the weakened government in Damascus, with this, uh, the ambitions of the Syrian Kurds now slightly inflamed, Uh, Turkey decided to invade Syria and is uh, really very heavily heavily hitting the Kurdish enclave in the north. Now, the Kurds, of course, miscalculated. They thought that since they had provided the ground uh, fighting on behalf of the Americans against ISIS, and at that time the Americans gave them close air support, the, the Syrian Kurds calculated that at this point they would get American assistance, either pressure on uh, Ankara, pressure on Turkey not to uh, invade, or at least, at the very least, an American resolution in the Security Council condemning this so that there's some room for the Syrian Kurds to block the Turkish incursion. None of this has happened. In fact, the United States has basically given a green light to Turkey to come in and beat down the Kurds. Uh, The Russians have withdrawn their forces from the region, uh, which I think suggests that they have cut a deal with Turkey, uh, that uh, the Turks can basically come and cut down the Kurdish government in this area. In in exchange, the uh, Syrian government is going to probably move in to the province of Idlib and basically close down Turkish proxies that have been uh, holed up in the province of Idlib. So meanwhile, on the Israeli border near the Golan Heights, Um, the Israelis have created a proxy force that has taken several uh, hundred square miles of Syrian territory as a kind of buffer zone uh, to protect Israeli interests. Uh, Israel had taken the Golan Heights in 1967 from uh, Syria, and then again more land in 1973, and now they've created a kind of buffer zone around the Golan, uh, paying off local fighters and so on, building loyalty towards Israel. So Syria is being sort of chipped away at the margins uh, while this main uprising uh, has ended.
0: Let's talk about that main uprising. And this has been very controversial across the political spectrum, but a lot of people on the left have uh, been very divided against each other. Some seeing uh, Assad as, as an anti-imperialist and someone worthy of support fighting against uh, uh, bad guys. And then on the other hand, you've got a lot of people uh, on the left also who've been cheering on the Syrian rebels, or at least factions of them. Where do you stand in that larger picture? What, what's your analysis of the whole conflict?
1: Well, you know, the world uh, doesn't present itself in simple terms. And I think that the debate, particularly in the United States, Uh, within the American left, has been very casual about the facts, you know, in in a sense, I think uh, they are fighting about something that doesn't exist on the ground. Uh, I think that, yes, it's true, of course, that there are severe problems with the Syrian government. It's a one-party state, it's an authoritarian state in many uh, regards, Uh, but it, you know, also has the loyalty of sections of the population. Uh, It's not, uh, you know, a situation where one push and the Government is going to collapse. It's a complicated uh, situation in Syria. And so there were, uh, there have been actually for the last 20 years, there's been a development of protests and unrest of different kinds, some from a liberal standpoint, some from a more left standpoint, uh, against the government in, in Syria. And certainly in the early phase in March or so of 2011, some of those currents came onto the street. But it's equally impossible not to see that very quickly regional uh, forces, as I said, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, the United States, to some extent France and others, uh, came in to put immense pressure on the Assad government by financing these uh, rebel groups. And it actually got even worse very fast by the end of 2011, when uh, various extremist were being brought from places like Libya, uh, even from Saudi Arabia, and you know, were, became very quickly the backbone of that uh, war against the Assad government. So you, know, you can uh, all be right and all be wrong at the same time. In other words, just because the uh, Syrian government uh, is not a, a government that is open-minded and democratic and so-and-so, uh, doesn't make the, the rebellion against it a good thing. And uh, just because the rebellion against it is not good doesn't make the Syrian government a pleasant government. I mean, you know, uh, this idea that there has to be one side that you have to back in a conflict like this is erroneous. On the other hand, uh, it is also the case that to not see how dangerous it was uh, to have this uprising uh, morph into extremism of the worst kind, sectarianism of the worst kind, where currents that had... Uh, been familiar, uh, you know, through ISIS, uh, had become normal in this resistance in towns like Aleppo uh, and other places. I mean, this was not a revolutionary uprising uh, by early 2012. So I think it became kind of almost silly to have a discussion where one had to say, well, one is an anti-imperialist or the people are, are up, you know, are correct or whatever it is. I, I think it's much more nuanced than that much more difficult to understand in simple terms. And in a case of a war uh, like this, especially a regional war, perhaps even to some extent a global war with America and the Russians involved, I think the devil certainly resides uh, not in broad strokes, but in the details.
0: Well, that sort of complexity does not uh, sit well in the age of Twitter, though.
1: Well, the age of Twitter has its own problems, of course. But, you know, why should we make the world... Conform to 140 or 280 characters. You know, uh, the world and world politics is far more complicated than that. But, you know, Doug, you, you'll recognize that this is a problem that the American left in particular has had for a long time. I mean, the left within the country is relatively weak, relatively powerless, and seems to have a great many fratricidal battles about things that are happening elsewhere. You know, whether it is what's the position on Cuba, what's the position on Vietnam, what's the position on Venezuela, this becomes the focus of so much attention and so much uh, really terrible, very violent bickering uh, inside the left, rather than to put some of that energy into building its own strength in the United States. I mean, w- whether it's the battle between, you know, the communist section and Michael Harrington's democratic socialists. 40, 30 years ago, or it's now over Syria, there is this, I think, grammar in the American left to have your internal debates about world politics rather than look in the mirror.
0: You spent a lot of time traveling around the world. And uh, how does our left look in contrast with the left's elsewhere? Is this sad and pathetic and as, and as divided as, as ours is?
1: the left, uh, there's no question that the left is weak globally. There is no question about that. One would be crazy to uh, say anything, uh, you know, different than that. On the other hand, I think there's very productive and and positive signs uh, around the world. Uh, You know, in South America, the left, despite being to some extent on the electoral back foot, continues to go out there amongst the people, organize the people. I mean, I was in Brazil recently, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, moved by the kind of organizing done by the Landless People's Movement, the MST. Uh, You know, in Africa, uh, one is seeing the left reassert itself. In Zambia, there's a new socialist party that has grown. Uh, In South Africa, there's a renewed debate within the South African Communist Party about its alliance with the ANC the deputy leader there is a very uh, much a left person there's also talk about the creation of a workers party in south africa uh, if you look in asia you know the the communist movement in india has had a major revival of struggles on the street uh, in 2016 we saw 180 million workers go out on strike what was really amazing about that strike was it was basically called by the formal sector unions But all the issues that they picked up were issues that related to the informal sector, uh, to the most uh, exploited of the sections of the working class. So there are lots of positive signs. I mean, you know, I I don't mean to suggest that, you know, uh, (laughs) this uh, kind of despair should be universal. I think that, you know, particularly for intellectuals and others, uh, one should uh, look beyond, uh, you know, some of these kind of narrow Uh, arguments and look to see where are the productive, you know, dynamics in society, where are the movements happening. You know, no society is quiescent. Every society will have its own contradictions. One needs to go, and as Michael Franti sings in one of his songs, one has to go and, you know, move the contradictions along. You know, you don't, uh, uh, as an intellectual, just sit back and observe the contradictions, analyze it in order to push the dynamic forward.
0: I should talk to you more often. You're a good antidote to my uh, my tendency towards despair. I'm speaking with the writer, activist, and now former academic Vijay Prashad. Speaking of despair, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the current American regime, Donald Trump. We have an awful lot of hyperbole around him. You know, he's like the worst thing ever. He's our own Hitler. Um, you know, there's, he's like breaking all precedent. No president like him ever. Uh, other people arguing for. It's a sort of caricature of um, black and white argumentation that characterizes a lot of American politics. You know, arguing there's an awful lot of continuity, not much change, uh, not as bad as Obama in some respects. What's your evaluation of Trump's regime and what he represents and where he's taking us?
1: Well, I mean, to some extent, I would say that this is a historical development. You know, I, I don't quite accept the view that there is a sort of tweedledee, tweedledum to American politics. You know, you'll have some period of George W. Bush, then you get an Obama, then you get a Donald Trump, and next you look forward to Obama Part Two. You know, I don't actually accept that. I think there was a period of continuity, uh, which you might say goes from something like, you know, maybe Nixon or, or maybe Reagan out to Obama. In other words, that's the what broadly people might call a neoliberal phase, where in order to tackle the issues of globalization, hemorrhaging jobs, and so on. Uh, there was a kind of neoliberal uh, policy slate that was available to the managers of the system. Clinton, of course, was perhaps at the highest point of this. You know, experimenting uh, in a way to figure out how to close budgets when the rich have gone on a massive tax strike and where there are still uh, historic demands from the people for things like health care, you know, some decent educations, or how to close that gap between the rich disappearing and the you know the working people, middle class, etc., demanding certain uh, uses of uh, social wealth. I think that gap was to be closed by some sort of neoliberal policy slate, privatization, cannibalizing various things, etc. But I think that that uh, strategy, if we call neoliberal policy a strategy, that strategy basically ran out of steam uh, in the end of the Bush into the Obama period, with the financial crisis, maybe with the, you know, expansion of U.S. militarism and so on. So uh, after you had this, I think, what I think is kind of like the neoliberal moment ending, the impossibility of a neoliberal solution uh, to the problems posed by globalization, you get this new period opening up. And I think Trump is one piece of this new period because this new period is not only an American thing, it's a global phenomena. You know, whether it's somebody like... Say, you know, the uh, leaders in Eastern Europe, uh, they are most dramatic like this, but also your Macrons and your Merkels and others, they are also struggling to some extent with what is the next ruling class response uh, to globalization, uh, to the problem of, you know, the rich not wanting to contribute to budgets, uh, to the increasing demands from the population for some kind of uh, share of the social a surplus. So I think Trump is just another manifestation of the search for the next ruling class uh, solution to the crisis. Yes, he's a gross guy. And, you know, he's a disgusting fellow. And I would not personally like to engage him, you know, in the same way as I would imagine Obama is a delightful person. And I'd quite be happy to go and meet him. But, uh, you know, politically and in terms of their role in society, they were both Uh, symbols of or at least managers for the ruling class of a certain crisis in their society. It's true, of course, Trump has the worst personality of any American president. I can't imagine uh, ever running into him. I don't know what I would do. Somewhere between spluttering and wanting to throw something at him. But that doesn't uh, define his role as 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 a manager of the system. His role as a manager is similar to these others. They are actually in a period searching for the next approach to a crisis, which, you know, maybe they'll solve. I'm not one of those people that believes, you know, (laughs) that now the system will collapse on its own. Uh, They'll find some short-term solution, which will again run out of steam. But I think they are searching for a solution, and Trump is just emerged in the middle of that search.
0: There does seem to be this uh, situation around the world, at least in in the Northern Hemisphere, where you've got... uh... The neoliberal versus you know the, the crypto-fascist or the authoritarian. So we're like you have to vote for Hillary Clinton because Trump is so horrible. You have to vote for Macron because uh, Le Pen is so horrible. Uh, now we've got Berlusconi coming back. It, this seems, bourgeois politics does seem to be at something of an impasse. It really can't even decide where it wants to go.
1: Yeah, it's, it is at an impasse. I mean, I think we should uh, recognize that. It's actually quite a hopeful thing. And it's a moment where I think it's important for movements and the intellectuals of the movements to a different, you know, an alternative to this. Uh, some kind of different plan, some kind of different project. I think one of the great limitations, and maybe this is the defensiveness of intellectuals in in this long period of the last 10, 15, 20 years, has been we've become so defensive, so much about criticizing what uh, the bourgeoisie is doing or what the managers of, you know, the ruling elites are doing. We're not actually putting forward Uh, vigorously enough, our own project, you know, if we took power today, what would we do? How should we see things? I mean, I'll I'll give you an example. In New Delhi, uh, there's a metro that was built. It's a very good, very perfectly decent public transport system. It solved a lot of problems uh, for traffic in the city. So, you know, here's uh, Delhi with terrible foul pollution and a very good metro. Well, the right-wing government decided that this is a good moment to double the fares on the metro. You know, it's a perfect moment for them to reveal their stupidity. Now, what is important here is not for the left merely to say, don't double the fares. We need to be out there saying that the metro should be free and there should be 10 times the number of trains running. You know, when I drive a car in Delhi, I don't pay tolls to use the road. I drive on them for free. And, of course, uh, it's my tax money that is keeping up the roads. So, too, is tax money keeping up the uh, rail lines for the metro. So why, should the, why should we have a class-based system that allows private car drivers to drive for free on roads, whereas somebody who rides on the metro has to pay every time? So, you know, we need to imagine what a city should look like. We need to be much more aggressive in our project that we put out there. I think that in a time of this kind of crisis where people are flailing about, they have no idea how to so-called manage the system, uh, it's not for us to solve their own problems. We need to put out a much more aggressive view of what the world could look like.
0: Amen. And finally, in your own personal life, you're leaving Trinity College. Before I pressed the record button, you were telling me why. So let's let's recount some of those reasons. Why have you given up on academia? Uh, Giving up a 10-year job uh, is... uh, takes a little courage.
1: No, not really, uh, Doug, in the sense that I think that, you know, jobs are jobs and the lives we lead are finite, so I don't, I, I've never understood why uh, one has to hold on to something just because it's there. You know, uh, you have to live your life, and plus you have to live your life in consonance to some extent with your, with your politics. Maybe I've spent too much time uh, teaching where I've been teaching. The security does sort of wear you down. I think this is a good moment uh, not to be teaching at small institutions like that, you know, with uh, where there's a certain comfort and so on. I mean, I, I would like to see many more intellectuals, and that's the project I'm involved in now. I'd like to see many more intellectuals globally, uh, you know, coming together in collaborative ways uh, to work out some of the, uh, our own ideas for how the world should be organized. You know, again, as I said, it's not enough to criticize uh, the elites. What is our project? You know, often we hear people will say, well, you know, you on the left, I like your values, you're sensitive, nice people, but you're totally utopian. You know, nothing you uh, talk about is possible. Your system failed in the Soviet Union. You know, this is a commonplace thing one has heard for decades. And I think uh, to some extent, they are correct that we haven't, articulated what our world would look like. You know, often when you meet a person on the left, they'll say, well, it's not our view to... We we should not imagine the future. Uh, The future will produce itself. You know, when you win power, some new idea will come up. I don't think that appeals to people. It scares them. You know, what are you saying to the general public? Come with me, let's jump into the abyss, and as we are falling down, a parachute will miraculously appear. I don't think that's a very attractive a way to get people to jump with you into the future. You need to have some sort of, uh, you know, approach to the present and the future available to people so that they say, well, look, I like what you're saying. I think that's a really good idea. So part of what I'm going to be doing in this next part is basically work with intellectuals around the world who are closely linked to movements to try and produce some alternative vision for the future, a kind of syllabus for the future, you know, so we can read things together, we can understand, uh, you know, some of our problems that are faced now and come up not with short-term solutions, uh, you know, to uh, stop gaps, but uh, use our thinking, use the work of our movements to produce what I think are medium-term solutions uh, to problems, you know, problems of urbanization, problems of housing, how to tackle some of these questions. It's not enough just to be critical, I would argue. I think it's very important to have a, uh, you know, a, a, a set of, of visions of what a future society could look like.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, we, we we're lacking in any kind of practical uh, suggestions of where to go, but we're also lacking any kind of utopian vision at the same time
1: this is very important you know it's it will be easy to listen to what i'm saying and somebody can say well you know he's just a, a reformer or he's this is just a, uh, in the realm of the practical etc you know i can imagine that uh, some years ago uh, the european marxist andre Gortz wrote a book where he came up with a distinction between reformist reforms and non reformist reforms and what he meant was some reforms are absorbable by the capitalist system, and some are simply not absorbable. And this is an interesting distinction. I I think it's something to think about. That it's true that some reforms the system can absorb. Uh, That is to say, by the system, what I mean is the system of private property. Some reforms uh, can be uh, produced inside a system where very small numbers of people are basically sitting on top of mountains of capital. But other reforms may not be able to be absorbed into, in this present system. And our utopian thinking is really another way of saying uh, we've come up with practical reforms that cannot be absorbed inside this system. And this sounds like a very dull way of saying uh, utopia. But I think that's what utopia is. Utopia isn't no place. It's uh, the ability of for us to imagine a new kind of, say, transportation system, uh, which can solve so many of the issues that we face now, but is itself not possible now because of the problems of private property. For instance, the idea of having free public transport. You know, the the argument against it will be you can't get things uh, without paying for it, or that people will misuse uh, you know, anything that's free. This seems to be not a charge made against the rich, it's just a charge made against the poor. And in that sense, the utopianism of the rich is acceptable. The utopianism of the poor is unacceptable. And so we need to fight against that and produce uh, some kind of utopia that is for the people in general. I
0: was Vijay Prashad, formerly of Trinity College and now Executive Director of Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. There's a colon between Tricontinental and the Institute. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. was the 26th of Bach's Goldberg Variations, performed by Andras Schiff. Next, Jennifer Cohen on gender and economics. A couple of weeks ago, the New York Times ran a piece, one that appeared in the front page of the print edition, on the thin representation of women at the annual conference of the American Economics Association. The piece, amusingly written by two men, Jim Tankersley and Noam Scheiber, focused on how few women there are in the profession, a point illustrated by the number of all-male panels at the annual conference. A third of the entrants, 33%, into economics graduate programs in the U.S. are women. Then the further you go up the ladder, the more male the cast gets. Slightly fewer, 31, are awarded PhDs. Fewer again, 28%, can be found at the junior faculty level. Continuing the declining trend, 26% of tenured faculty are women, and just 13% of full professors are women. Some of that is no doubt a pipeline effect. The senior ranks should have more women on them with time, but given the nature of the profession, it may not be that many more. There are scandalously few female bylines in the economics journals as well. Things are unsurprisingly worse for black women. In the decade ending in 2015, just 52 black women earned econ PhDs, not much of an improvement on the 46 in the previous decade. This isn't just a labor market issue. As my next guest, Jennifer Cohen, will argue, it affects the kinds of things that economists study and think. In the interview, Cohen speaks of homo economicus, the economic human, a mythical creature posited by the discipline who calculates and allocates rationally living life as a kind of accountant, balancing work and leisure, getting and spending, achieving a perfect maximization of one's potential. John Maynard Keynes put it nicely, referring to, quote, an extraordinary contraption of the Benthamite school, referring to the utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham, by which all possible consequences of alternative courses of action were supposed to have attached to them, first a number expressing their comparative advantage, and secondly another number expressing the probability of their following from the course of action in question, so that multiplying together the numbers attached to all the possible consequences of a given action and adding the results, we could discover what to do. In this way, a mythical system of probable knowledge was employed to reduce the future to the same calculable status as the present, No one has ever acted in this theory, but even today I believe that our thought is sometimes influenced by such pseudo-rationalistic notions. End of the quote from Keynes. Many people, especially not those of a traditionally privileged demographic, meaning people other than white, comfortably born men, find this belief system weird and run away from economics as a monstrous vision of human life. Cohen also uses a few abbreviations in the interview that listeners might not recognize. One is ERPI, the Union for Radical Political Economics, an organization consisting mostly of academic economists founded in 1968. I was a member until about 10 years ago, and a frequent attendee at its annual late August conference, held at a kid's summer camp after all the campgoers have gone home. Early in its history, the women of ERPI, annoyed by the organizational and intellectual dominance of men, formed a women's caucus. In 1992, IAFI, the International Association for Feminist Economics, was founded. It includes quite a few radicals, but also a lot of liberals of the Sheryl Sandberg sort who are fine with capitalism as long as there's room for women at the top. Jennifer Cohen is assistant professor of global and intercultural studies at Miami University in Ohio and a researcher at the Society, Work, and Development Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. A technical note. I recorded this interview, as I record many, using Skype rather than the phone. Skype can produce much better audio than the phone, but is subject to weird glitches, gaps, noises, distortion. This is a good, if not great, Skype signal. I think it's better than the phone despite the glitches. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, nothing is got for nothing. Okay, here's Jennifer Cohen. There was an article in the New York Times uh, the other week about uh, the role of women in the economics profession. What did the article have to say, why we are not quite satisfied with its coverage?
2: So the article really focuses on representation, which is important, and I'm really happy to see this long-overdue attention paid to systemic gender and race bias in economics by the mainstream and by the media. But this focus on representation that it has is just looking at the number of women that are in economics, the number of practitioners, and not the practice of economics. So it's looking representation as the problem instead of why representation is a problem and the reason that representation is a problem is because demographic underrepresentation changes the substance of the discipline and more women in the discipline can change the discipline itself
0: does this have something to do with the nature of economics or is this just a, a normal normal life in academia
2: this has something to do I think with the substance of economics And certainly the the discipline is different from other social science disciplines in terms of the the way that it views individual actors and formulates theory and decision-making. So, I, I mean, I think that women find economics difficult to get into when a lot of the theorization is this abstract idea around homo economicus. So there are textbooks that either don't have, they don't feature women economists or they don't have pictures of women, or when they have pictures of women, they show them doing what is, quote-unquote, considered women's work. But there's also the theorization of rational economic man, of homo economicus, where you have this theorization of the individual actor in economics as this utility-maximizing individualist entity. So it's sort of in that, like, born-alone, die-alone ideology, which, you know, Obviously, in real life, you're not born alone, and you don't die alone. If you act in the way that we theorize, homo economicus, with sociopathic kinds of tendencies, you you might die lonely. But the born-alone-die-alone kind of model of individualism, I think, is something that a lot of women find alienating in terms of a theorization when they start looking at the world through the economic lens.
0: Well, I'm tempted to say it's a special kind of man who would not find that alienating because I think an awful lot of men would find that pretty alienating as well. It's true. That whole notion of homo economicus, I am sure that a lot of mainstream economists Male economists would say that uh, it's just a, a simplification technique, a way to begin thinking about things. That Maybe it doesn't really represent the real world adequately. What is the relationship of that kind of you know, idealized uh, homo economicus to uh, the discipline and, and what is the point of it?
2: So, I mean, it can be useful as an abstraction to think about decision-making if one is focused on decision-making instead of, for example, the constraints under which one makes decisions. But it's interesting that you raise this about the way that that also might be unappealing to men as well. So, you know, for example, if you're informed by that view and you imagine that people primarily construct identities around the workplace instead of the family, then you have this blind spot there in it. Economics around thinking about the family, but the problem there isn't just that women are excluded because we assume that women identify primarily through family. It eliminates the possibility that men also identify through the family, and puts the primacy on paid work. Right, and so that presents a fairly limited view of human identity. At the same time as excluding the family from analysis, excluding the household, right and constructing ideas about what's valued and what's valuable. So it applies both to men and women, and it limits our understanding
0: of human subjectivity for both. Now, what about the possibility that this is just the way life under capitalism is, and that economics is, by positing this homo economicus, this rational calculating machine, it really is, you know, a faithful representation of the way we're supposed to behave under this economic system. It doesn't mean it's a good thing, but it is, uh, you know, a faithful uh, picture.
2: So, I mean, this is one of the huge problems, right? I mean, this is a real-world problem. Gender is always already present, and masculine ideals are made to appear natural. And this is particularly the case in capitalism, in which those ideals are rewarded and reinforced. So you have this, the theorization of the individual, of, of human nature, that is essentially selfish, rational, optimizing, self-interested. Right? And, but on the basis of this understanding of human nature and the material benefits of exchange, you can construct an argument that capitalism is the best, most efficient, welfare-maximizing way to organize activity then. But that is an endorsement of the status quo. It keeps us from thinking creatively. If we know that humans are like this, then there's no need to our
0: alternatives. What about you, your experiences of becoming an economist? Um, did you find this a very alien kind of discourse and a way of thinking?
2: My background prior to economics is in other disciplines and I did find it strange. I mean, I didn't start in economics until I was doing my PhD. So it's, it's an odd perspective to take on, and for me was always itself an object of study, um, not just to see what I could get from economics using an economic lens, but understanding the way that economics itself is constructed. And, you know, right now, I'm in the Department of Global and Intercultural Studies, and there are a lot of women that are feminist economists who are no longer in economics departments and are often in things like women's studies or other interdisciplinary
0: programs. Now, of course, you mentioned feminist economics. There is a, a, a vigorous school of uh, feminist economists. They didn't really make much of an appearance in that Times piece, did they?
2: They didn't, and that was one of the things that was odd about it, but that's part of the function of focusing on representation instead of why representation matters, because feminist economists will hone will straight to that. Because for them, I mean, they're looking at representation being important because it changes who the researcher is. It changes the economic subjects that they look at. It changes the problems they're concerned with and how they study them. And it changes the kind of research that we consider valid and valuable and potentially the way that policy outcomes are
0: evaluated. What are some examples of the kinds of things that feminist economists uh, would study that uh, your more mainstream male economist wouldn't?
2: I mean, all of the work that has happened around time use, I think, is a really great example of this.
0: Um, some of the, the stuff by Maria
2: Floro was great for this. You see the focus on unpaid work, on unpaid care work from people like Nancy Fulbright, and then you have real-world empirical studies looking at the way that people spend time in order to better understand how much time and how intensely the time is used on different kinds of work. right? And that unpaid work isn't present because we have the idea that paid work is the focus because that's partly what men were doing, right? So the focus on unpaid work, the focus on care work, the focus on time use as a way of actually measuring that. There's been some new work in macroeconomics, but I'm less familiar with that personally outside of the original stuff in gender and development, which looked at like austerity policies and how they have different impacts on women and men. So you have a policy that seems to be gender neutral, but the impacts are different because men and women have different roles on the basis of gender norms
0: and things in various societies. I'm speaking with the economist Jennifer Cohen. Of course, the all that unpaid work, the, the, the care labor you're talking about, are uh, the th- these are the things that produce the worker. So no unpaid work, none of that care work, there are no workers and you workers. Know, there's no money to be made, uh, but that just does not really enter onto uh the uh, the mental landscape of your t- traditional bourgeois economist
2: right. I mean, if you look at the production function, you have you know production production is a function of land, labor, capital, something, and you, you have labor there as a resource just to be discovered. It just already exists. There's no looking at the reproduction of the worker. So, you know, the work that's being done in social reproduction theory is really interesting about this now and really useful. And we're working on some of this in economics, um, social reproduction going all the way back to Heidi Hartman. This is something that we were studying in the 1970s in Marxist feminist economics anyway. So I mean, that work has a really long history in feminist work because of the recognition that, you know, no one is actually, in fact, born alone and we reproduce ourselves, and a our labor power on a daily basis and intergenerationally.
0: What, what is the role of feminist economics in the profession? Is it seen as fairly marginal? Has it had any influence on, on mainstream thinking?
2: It's a good question. You know, the history of these different organizations, the Women's Caucus in IRPE started in 1971. The C-SWEP started in 1971. Also, IAFI, the International Association for Feminist Economics, started in the early 90s. And I think Aiye has had a big impact through its journal, Feminist Economics. There have been a lot of efforts to get more attention onto women economists and women's concerns, and obviously gender bias in the discipline too. Um, but at the same time, it you know it's present, but it seems to always be in a sort of precarious position in terms of getting panels and and you know really having a very firm foothold in the economics profession, and you know, you don't see many, for example, classes that are feminist economics courses that people get to teach. So it's been influential in some ways, but I think that the impact of it has been constrained by the sexism in the profession and the discipline.
0: Within feminist economics is also something of a split between what I call the Sheryl Sandberg wing uh, of uh, Economic thinking and more radical kind of feminism. Um, what's that landscape look like?
2: So, I mean, the, the Sheryl Sandberg sort of lean-in feminism is, I would say, compatible with the theorization of the individual, right? I mean, the focus there is on decision making and individual actions. And a more radical view of that would, would look at that and say, okay, but what are you asking people to lean into? It looks at a more um, at the at the context of discrimination, at structural discrimination. Uh, to better understand the constraints under which decisions are made, which includes things like gender norms. And so in terms of the way that that plays out in feminist economics, I mean, there are people who cross over between a more mainstream view or mean more mainstream application and less mainstream sort of theoretical orientation and vice versa. I've been working right now putting together a feminist radical political economy group and reconstituting this women's caucus that was present in ERPI back in the 70s and up until, I believe, the early 90s, actually. Um, and so that that is aiming to foster, to design an intellectual community to foster more radical feminist research.
0: I remember there was a ERPI summer camp about uh, about 10 years ago where there was supposed to be an ife um conversation. And I found it very dispiriting because it seemed like both sides are talking past each other. Nobody really got <laughs> into much of a dialogue. Um, have, have things improved along those lines since, since I stopped going to IRPE summer camps?
2: So, I'm not sure about the summer camps, but we have been working, my my sort of co-founder and I, Kirsten, we've been working over the course of the last year to get more feminist work in IRPE, and we've had, I think, a, it's been really well received, we've had panels at at AEA, and we have two of them at Easterns that are coming up. So I think that there is an openness to this kind of work in IRPE. But, you know, as ever, we need to push for getting space, making space, and claiming that space for feminist and gender work.
0: What kinds of um, changes to the way of doing the discipline of economics do you think this feminist critique could bring to the profession? Like what, what, How would you be looking at the world differently from the way, you know, your standard list of Nobel Prize-winning economists would look at it?
2: I think it changes economics from very, very fundamental building block kind of level. You know, I mean, it feminist economics challenges our understanding of what the economy is, of what the economy is to achieve, what the thing is for. It challenges ideas about what counts as work, right, adding in, the unpaid work that's, that is what reproduces labor power. Um, so, I mean, it, I think that it really changes very radically our understanding of what economics is and what the potential is. And, you know, because it, it extends from the idea that, you know, economics consists of capitalist market economy to thinking about economies as ways of provisioning human life.
0: It does seem like, uh, to a typical economist, people exist to serve the economy rather than vice versa. Exactly. I was Jennifer Cohen, Assistant Professor of Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University in Ohio, and a researcher at the Society, Work, and Development Institute at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Wake Up by Essential Logic, digitized my very own 1979 vinyl 7-inch. Till next week, bye. (音楽) We'll be right back. back.